Everybody and welcome back to another edition of the POD cast. This is episode number 49. It's your favorite podcast about new metal. This month we are covering the seminal Limp Biscuit classic, their debut album, the album that started it all. $3 bill, y'all. I'm John, and with me is a man who he's a little bit of a bitch. He's maybe even a bitch in heat. It's Brian Quinby. That's me, a big bitch in heat. Thanks for calling me horny. That's not going to ever come up again, ever, I'm sure. Well, I had to I had to give you something, you know, like uh, I always introduce you with a song lyric and uh, just based on what's been going on lately for you, I figured that was sort of the most appropriate one now that you've These revealed yourself to be a sex guy. These rumors are fucking getting out of hand now. Well, I'll say this. I know... I know it's all just kind of a joke and you're not really a sex guy, but whenever we cover Limp Biscuit, it does have to be said that your wife's dream three-way is you and Fred Durst. So, yeah, you know what it is? Let me just say this. Uh, me and Chris are currently in a radio war with your Kickstarter sucks because they've been spreading lies about me. Um, yeah. Which true at this point. Yeah, we're in a radio war because they said I went to hedonism too and got jacked off by an octopus, and that's not true. <laughs> so you're in, so you're in a war now. I well, yeah, because they also called Legos dumb toys for babies once. And wow, then, and that's rude. That's actually rude. Mike, hey, and by the way, eighteen and up is the I only play with eighteen and up Lego sets, which are a lot more intricate and interesting. Yeah, you'd never give those to a baby. They'd be like, "What is this?" They'd probably choke on the pieces. To be quite honest, yeah, they could never. They could never build. They the could never I'd do build. it. No, yeah. definitely. I mean, not. you look behind me, and you're seeing some fucking premier eighteen and up Lego sets. And then, no question about that. And it, and it is truly eighteen and up Lego sets, if you know what I mean. It is they're not crazy that spent. you did a set of hedonism too. I didn't even know that they made a Lego out of that bribe, but that You'd is have, crazy. You would say that. And then, <laughs> and then, and then, Mike Hale of your Kickstarter sucks was asked what his blue sky name was. And he said, murder X Brian. So now when I go over there, people are like, Hey Mike, hi Mike. So I told Chris, these fucking YKS guys said that I got jacked off by an octopus at yep. hedonism too. And Chris said, well, that's plausible, but nobody says that about my friend. So him and I decided to go to war with them. And Smart. Uh, here's the problem. <laughs> And there's a little inside podcasting for everybody behind the scenes, you know? A little uh, inside baseball. A little bit. Sometimes we record our shows five weeks early. So the You mean thing for we, guys? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't need another show until September 19th. Nice. Which is, you know, almost three weeks from now or whatever. And yeah. like, um, so the radio war is actually starting on the Patreon. Because we do those shows every week. You know, we do a Patreon show. So uh, it's going to be a slow kind of 
uh, we're kind of doing terrorism right now where it's just a smaller group. You're of people. doing terrorism. Yeah. Smaller group of people. Mm. You know what I mean? I feel like there are definitely people who listen to this show that know what you're talking about right now. But I do also think there is a very solid percentage of our audience that has no idea. They do not listen to our other shows. They do not know what YKS is, and they will be very confused. People lie opening to this program. Just know that there's a lot of people out there telling <laughs> lies about me. Just know if you follow me on Twitter and you see you see some of this slander, ombudsmanship. It's, it's I'm doing true. ombudsmanship. I'm like being like, no, no. I heard you guys have like ombudsmen in Canada. Like ombudsmen. Just a, I love the I love the way you're pronouncing that. I don't know how it's ombudsman. pronounced. I didn't even know what it was. I just learned about them yesterday. Yeah, it's like a. They're they're usually like. Uh, like they're concerned with laws and bylaws and the rules and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Chris sent me an article. Chris James sent me an article about a, a guy who in Canada, in Vancouver, BC, isn't being allowed to wear his po- pirate hat in his uh, in his uh, license, his security guards li- license. So was, I guess you guys got to get a license to be a security guard here. We just give it to losers that couldn't be the police. And like, uh, so this guy is a security guard. He's getting a security guard's license and he wants to wear a pirate hat because he's a Pastafarian. And what I love about Canada is that they said no. They just said no. Because here they would have to do it because we have all that, you know, oh, religious free crap like that. You guys, Canada was just like, no, it's goofy. We don't need you goofing around on your license pictures, which I really like. I like that attitude. Uh, I'm probably going to run for president on a more Canadian thing where I say like, uh, you're going to run for president or mayor where we're, we're kind of not going to put up with shenanigans from people like pasta. You're going to run for mayor of Columbus. Why not? I mean, I mean, all those times that I say I hate it here and I want to leave. Well, that's a, yeah, <laughs> see my that opponent's a great ad? platform. I think people will listen to like one episode of guys and you'll probably be in big trouble. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, there's been some stuff on there that maybe shouldn't have been said. Most of I'm an innocent guy, though, to tell you the truth. I don't say anything really nasty over there. Chris did say 9-11 was funny, but I didn't find it funny. And I well, that's that's, that's actually kind of like a good like platform, I think, to run on is sort of like, uh, you know, is Chris can kind of be your foil, right? That he he kind of says a lot of bad things, and then you go, no, I do, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of a good way of sort of setting that up, you know? Yeah, he's a sweet boy. He just sometimes makes fun of me and tells people lies about me. But that's rude. That's fine. That's the way the world fucking works. When you're an entertainer out there, people will lie about you. People will say you work for the CIA. You know, which I do. How- how many votes do you think you would get if you ran for mayor? I get votes for president every year. I don't know if I get votes for mayor here, but uh, I don't know. I've always figured like there is a way. People know you, right? You're kind of like a legendary figure in Columbus for all of your walking. I wouldn't say legendary, but people do see me a lot. You know what I mean? Like I think right. people so, downtown, but I also, I think like, so if you factor that in as well as your sort of, podcasting thing and the potential money you would get from people like and also it's like how many votes let's let's like how many votes did let let me look at the last like i don't know how many 
Could uh, I get a 10% little bit in there? I think well, I let's probably see. I'm, I'm going to see how... Oh, they, they are... You know that the mayoral election is coming up, right? No, I didn't. It's coming up on November, November, November 7th, 2023. Yeah, that's also weed. We're going to get recreational weed on that one. Do too. you know? Do you know the name of the current mayor? Um. Uh. Oh yeah, I do. I do. Okay. What is it? I do. I don't need to tell you. Um. Well, you do though, because that's kind of. I'm kind of asking you. Okay, hold on. His name's um Aunt, Aunt, Andy Ginther. Yeah, Andy okay. Ginther. Yes. You it got took it. me a minute to figure out, but I think here's what I think I could do. Oh what my god, dude! Are you? By the way, no offense, or no, none. This Ginther won. Me. Ginther won the mayoral election with ninety three point five percent of the vote. Yeah, because because it's Columbus, right? Like that's so, crazy, though. So he was it, also mayor. He's been mayor for a long time. But it's not that crazy when you look at sort of how because what happens is like. They, in order to do other elections, like uh, presidential elections, they kind of draw the district lines around downtown. And then, st- so the Columbus is just the urban part of the city. Then the other places around us are like, like there's a Pickerington, which is, they Pickerington? Get yeah, Pickerington gets a mayor. Fucking Canal Winchester gets a mayor. Worthington gets a mayor. Like, they all have mayors. So, like, the whole urban middle of the city where downtown is, of course, that's going to always vote city for Democrat. Name. Pickerington, you don't like that's that? Fun. They were my rivals. I don't. I don't. They were like my that. rivals in high school. Pickerington. And if, I had, if I had cared about high school or rivals at all, I would have been. You would have been. You wild. hated them. Yeah. Do you know that. what uh, what Pickerington is known for? What they're they are the blank capital of Ohio. Do you know what 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 that what they are? <laughs> Fucking. It's not tomatoes because that's Reynoldsburg. No, it's um, not tomatoes. It is a plant. It is a plant. It, I know. Though. I know it's a plant. I just haven't been out there in like a very long time, and I'm not remembering now. Uh, it is the violet capital of Ohio. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because their colors are purple, and you know, back when Groveports were red and black, you know, and that was all oh, right. School. Groveport. That's where you're from, right? And and we would, you know, because it's purple, we would have certain insults that you probably wouldn't mm. do. You probably wouldn't do those now. I would. No, say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would go back. Purple is a royal color, that. so you were probably saying like, "Hey, fuck you, king." Yeah, we don't fucking do kings in America. Yeah, you know we, what I mean. At, why don't you go to Canada? They got the, They have the fucking king. Our 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 uh, also, you know, our mascot cruiser was a lot cooler than cruiser. Cruiser, yeah. That was the name of your mascot. What yeah, was your horse. what was your school nickname? Uh, Groveport Madison Senior High School, and then the Cruisers was the team. And oh, the, the team was just called the Cruisers. Yeah, because it's a horse, mm. right? Like our our. Uh, That's the, not when I think of Cruisers. I'm going to be honest with you. Horse, not really what I'm thinking. Well, it's about a guy. Like it's John interesting. Rary. You made fun of Pickerington for being purple when you guys were called the Cruisers. If you, if you sort if you sort of get my drift back then we didn't know that back then you right know? i guess cruising wasn't really a term that you no, would have was known back then. Oh, okay okay but cruiser was a so there was a horse that could not be broken you know what i mean mm. and uh this john rary guy broke the horse i guess and now 
cruiser became like the school's mascot because back in the day they didn't have those big mascot costumes you know so you just had to like pick an actual animal i think is is what i'm getting at gotcha you know you couldn't go put on like like this let me show you something Okay, wait. You just have a furry head? <laughs> Maybe. Why? What the You couldn't put something like this on your head. They didn't make them back then. You know? <laughs> Why do you have a furry head? Okay, so my my Is that a bear supposed to be? It is. Yeah. Okay. So my my grandmother-in-law, my my wife's grandma used to wear this bear costume to uh hospitals to you know, like dance for a little bit, cheer up the kids. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, she was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want, uh, you know, I don't have, so you're going to do it. No, I said, can I have the costume so I can, you know, do funny stuff with it. And, uh, she gave it to me. Like have sex in it. You can't have sex in it. There's nowhere to stick your dick out of, but I was going to do it. You'd have to, you'd make it, you'd make like a trap door or whatever. I was going to make it is a that mascot. A thing? Like, is that, see, now I know we have furries who listen to the pod, so you're, they're going to have to fill me in on this. But do when you get a furry suit, do you buy one specifically from like a fetish furry maker that has a dick hole or a pussy hole or a butthole or any or all of the above? Or do you just buy a mascot costume and modify it with a dick hole, pussy hole, or butthole, or uh, some of, or all of the above, or I guess mouth hole I mean, as well. They're not all fucking, you know. A lot of people are <sighs> like, you know, a lot of people are like, I just like to wear the furry costume. It's not like a sex thing, you know what I mean? I yeah, think. no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the sex thing. Though. The sex thing, they probably yeah. just rub up against each other. You know how it is. No, I don't think that's. I, I don't believe that they're just rubbing up against each it's other. It's kind of dry fucking in a suit, no, like in a costume. I don't think so. I think that I think, I think parts are out. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it's probably just rubbing. Anyway, so, if you're a furry listening to this. And you feel safe DMing us? Please tell 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 me the logistics here. I'm cururious because yeah. I don't know. I think it's just rubbing. John's horny yeah. again. Oh, I am no, not fucking horny. Up. He just had to clean come up all over his floor before okay. we even get Fuck started. Off. Yeah, my God, it was mostly shit and piss and blood and cum. I already said mostly the blood was though. in the cum. Like a lot more cum. <laughs> it was and piss. No, it wasn't more. John's cum than like kind of like a squirter when it comes to come uh what does that mean in this context like you're like you're you saying a, that like amount of like cum my cum oh okay i thought you were kind of so suggesting big. like my cum was thin like squirt so it kind of is like piss well, and there's more of it. it could be i mean that doesn't matter though <clears throat> it really anyway brian in the last that it feels good coming out you know that's really all that matters in the last mayoral election there was like 81,000 total votes. So, but here, this, this, the mayoral election is very funny to me. So, Ginther technically ran unopposed, but then there were 4,800 write in votes. So, just for like various people. And then there were 451 write in votes for some guy named Jeff Leopard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people joke. People are silly. That's like, pretty every good. Time so- like every Def time- Leopard, but Jeff Leopard. <laughs> Every time people look through my uh uh 
like when they look through the Columbus voter rolls and stuff, they always yeah. are like, you got like some votes. And I'm like, I think I could get a few thousand votes and be annoying to like the Democrat just out of like, you know, if you did a gimmick like where you're like, Wait, this guy your- is a real guy. Sorry, Jeff to Leopard. You. Yeah. I thought it was a joke. But no. apparently he's a real guy. He's Jeff and, I, and if you search him, his address comes up very quickly on officialusa.com. Um, yeah. So I could dox his ass very easily. So Jeff, if you're listening to this, well, don't fuck with me. Could... But I'm okay. But I'm saying, so what do you think if you ran for mayor, though, knowing, knowing that there was like 80,000-ish, a little more than 80,000 total votes. Like, how many do you think you could get? Because they're saying right now there are four mayoral candidates in 2023 coming up. Andrew Ginther is once again running. Then we have Carrie Griffin, Joe Mottel, and Tom Sussie. Oh, Tom, Tom. Sussie's running? Oh, yes. you know what he is. Let it me says tell you Tom Sissy. It says private investigator and former investigative reporter. <laughs> He's the guy, <laughs> the local news where they do like the shame on you. Right, they, right. That was Tom Sissy. Ah, it's funny. He had a thing uh, called the like, Hall of Lame. For, oh, uh, God. <laughs> but yeah, well, I think I could get like maybe 10, 10K because I you think you like, could get 10,000 votes well, in the Columbus be, mayoral election. If I could get covered in the press, which I think I probably could, you mm-hmm. know, because I could just invite people. I could, you like, could for sure. You could for sure because you're a podcaster, all that. Like, I think you could definitely get, you could definitely get coverage for sure. Yeah. And then I think people would see it as a goof. And then and I people take do... video of you walking, you know, they'd be like, oh, well, you might have seen Brian Quinby walking around. What the problem is, you'd have to make sure, though, that you're officially on the ballot and not a write in because yeah. then your votes will get split between Brian Quinby and Brian Quimby, which everybody thinks point. everybody thinks your last name is Quimby. Still, to this day, I get people being like, oh, yeah. You're on that show with Brian Quimby. I'm like, no, <laughs> you don't know I'm my on, name, no. guys. Come it's on, it's Quinn Quinby. Yeah, it's an N. For me, it's like I would probably the 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 plan I would go into it with is to just basically do live shows that are campaign stops mm. and mm-hmm. have people, you know, fly people in to to stand on stage with me and, and be like, vote for Brian. And I think I get maybe not 10 K I could get a lot of votes. I, I really believe that because let's I do it. Doing it as a goof and people love to vote as a goof. You know what I, I think mean? you have to wait for 2027, but yeah, I think it's too late for 2023, but Quinby 2027, I think is it's on the table for sure. Let's do it. I use the Simpsons, you know, as like my vote Quinby, you know, and yes, exactly. That's what standups that's, used. That's how standups used to introduce me. And I fucking hated it. I fucking just wanted to bite every single one of them after they said, oh, like the Simpsons guy. I was like, fuck you, man. I would not. Yeah, I wouldn't. If I was doing stand up with you, I would not introduce you as that. Thank you, because it's not, it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit. Speaking of introducing things, let's introduce this album, which introduced this band to the entire world. As I said off the top of the show, we are covering Limp Biscuits, $3 bill, y'all. This album came out on Canada Day, July 1st, 1997. It was recorded 
over a four-month span from November 1996 to February 1997. It was produced by Ross Robinson and released on Flip and Interscope Records. Everybody kind of knows the backstory of this album, but essentially uh, Fred faked being a tattoo artist, gave Fieldy from Corn a tattoo, or actually he gave Fieldy and Head yeah. tattoos. And there's one article that talks about how Fred gave Head a tattoo of the word corn, and they said that the K looked more like an H, and they used to bug Head because he had horn written on him instead of corn. But anyway, Fieldy passed the demo off to Ross Robinson. Robinson was very impressed by the band's motivation and sound and invited them to his Indigo Ranch studios where they recorded $3 Bill, y'all. Now, the album is called $3 Bill, unfortunately, because the band wanted people to not listen to them. That's why their name Limp Biscuit. Fred's whole theory was you don't want to listen to us. If like he's like if someone picks up the album they go Limp Biscuit, I'm not going to listen to a band called Limp Biscuit. He's like we don't want you to listen to us anyway. So, they decided that continuing their policy of using titles that would hopefully repulse potential listeners, the band named the album by using part of the phrase queer as a $3 bill and adding the word y'all at the end to embody Florida slang into the title, consequently giving the album the name $3 Bill Y'all. This album was received quite well from critics. A lot of people did indeed like it, except for Robert Criscow, but I mean, he he hates Limp Bizkit. He hates everything about Limp Bizkit. Uh, but it did very well, also performed well on the charts. Uh, in 1998, it peaked at number one on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart. Brian, your favorite chart of all time. Uh, and, then in, and then very interestingly, in 1999, after the release of Significant Other, $3 Bill Y'all peaked at number 22 on the Billboard 200. So Significant Other was so big that people went enough people went back and bought three dollar bill y'all in 1999. That that's when it had its peak, uh, which was in which was two years after the album was released. And in 1999, it ended the year at number 56 on the Billboard 200, which is crazy when you think about that, right? When you think about like this album came out in 1997, two full years later, it was shown to be their most popular year ever. Uh, it is certified double platinum in the United States. It's platinum also in Canada. It is gold in Australia and the UK. So it's probably sold roughly 3 million copies worldwide to date. And Brian, before I hear from you about Limp Biscuit, let's hear from Fred. Uh, this is an interview from Fred. Uh, I think Dan got my text and loaded up this video. Uh, so this is uh, this is an interview with Fred backstage in 1997 at a show describing three dollar bill y'all and just Limp Biscuit in general. And I thought this would be a fun way to kind of tee up discussing this album. Hit it, Dan. I think a lot of bands have tried to mix up stuff, you know, cross this crossover things going on here in the 90s. And I don't think I think some bands have done a killer job of it. Rage and Corn and and Sugar Ray and a lot of people and. Deftones, but at the same time, no one's done it like us yet. You know, we're just, we take all of our influences and we mix them together because we're true and real to all that kind of music. We can't go in and say, hey, we're just going to 
make some heavy jams. Hey, we're just going to make rap jams because we don't feel like that all the time. And we're all totally different people. So we get in there some days, it's mellow. Some days, it's heavy. Some days, it's uh, whack. Some days, it's good. (laughs) I hate it when things are whack. I think our record is a representation of how we're keeping it real. You know, we didn't stick with one style. We made sure that it's a roller coaster ride on that record. We're not locking ourselves into one thing because we're not all about one thing. We love all music, you know, except for country. (laughs) Well, I disagree with that, (laughs) but I get it. I get it. So, uh, you know, some people would argue that uh, maybe when the music, they put too much of the recording days that were whack uh, on this record. But uh, anyway, I thought that was a good encapsulation of uh, of Fred and, and where his head was at uh, when they were recording this album. So, Brian, uh, I'll pass it over to you. Obviously, we have talked at great length about Limp Biscuit on this show, but take us back. 1997 you actually i believe had the limp biscuit demo right before this came out uh fred durst handed it to you is that true is that a true story handed it to us street team handed it to you so you had the demo tell us about the demo leading up to three dollar bill y'all it could have been fred because they weren't you know they were just opening for corn and like they were the first band it was uh Limp Biscuit, then Delinquent Habits, which is a rap thing, and then Corn. So Fred could have been out handing them out. I don't know. I don't think I recognized who he was. You know what I mean? But when I read the articles for this episode, it does feel like he would have been the guy handing them out. Like, the guy's a fucking hustler. But anyway, yeah, we got it. We liked them live. You know, I don't think the audience went crazy or anything like that. But I think you know, everybody there were kind of like, oh, that's that's cool. But like, you can't really, nobody, it's hard for me to imagine that somebody can get into a band seeing them live without ever hearing them first on a CD or a tape or now Spotify. Like, I just always feel like I'm, I'm so close-minded to, to opening acts and always have been. Like, they feel like, commercials in a way where like you're watching TV and goddamn commercials come on and you're like, you're making me watch these in order to get back to the TV show. I wanted to watch. It was kind of like that. And like, uh, they handed us the tape. I don't even know why we listened to it really. Cause you get tapes walking out of con used to get tapes walking out of concerts all the time. We listened to it and we just loved it. And we fucking, wore it out man we listen to that thing constantly and i actually like the versions of uh stuck counterfeit and pollution better from the demo but that's just because i listened to them more and first and uh yeah so i bought three dollar billy all the day it came out because uh you know we had liked them live and we had those three songs i remember sort of being a a little bit disappointed in it but in the end came out on the other side and was like you know what i actually do i like this album and and i came around on it after a while so you didn't like it at first i thought they fucked it up at first because i thought, really yeah because the like i said the the um demos sounded much more clean than what ended up coming out and just the songs changed you know, it's not anything of like, 
it, it really was like I heard that it's kind of the same thing about why I don't like live albums, I guess, would be what I'm saying. Like, I like the song that I like and I don't need to hear it sang differently. And like, I think that's what ended up happening. So at first, I, I remember being pretty disappointed by it, but I, I ended up liking it, you know, giving it a bunch more chances and it became one of my favorite albums. So right. I just I, you. I well, sorry, you, you've kind of talked on the show before about how, you know, in this in this era, in 1997, there just weren't new metal bands, really. Like, you, you obviously, you have Deftones, have Adrenaline in 95 and Around the Fur in 97. You've got Korn with Self-Titled in 94, Life is Peachy in 96. You've got Rage Against the Machine, if you count them as a new metal band. But you had kind of said, like, at this time, new metal wasn't really a thing. So anytime you were like getting a slice of it, you were like so excited for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, again, you hear the song and you're like, whoa, this is fun. Like, because this album does sound super fucking cool compared to like some of the stuff that I had ended up buying between the time that, you know, the first Corn album came out and this album came out, you know, uh, this sounded closer to what i think i wanted when it came to rap rock you know it kind of felt like corn but it also felt like cool in a way because he was rapping and you know you see fred durst and so i saw him a couple times on tour before they really hit and uh i definitely saw them on like the last date of the three dollar billy all tour and it was fucking great it was like one of those shows that was like i love these fucking guys they did mostly covers and you know, kind of fucked around a little bit on stage. And it was just like a lot more fun to uh, be at the concert. And I think that's really where like, I think that's really where I was like, I fucking love these guys. These guys are fucking great. Like they did a cover of Hound Dog by Elvis, but they used the music from Rain and Blood by Slayer <laughs> at the show. And it was so fucking neat, man. It was just like songs I've never heard them play since. And I think that's when I was like, kind of like, you know, I was excited. I thought the concert was really fucking good. They played the songs. I also, they also played a lot of the songs I liked. And like, uh, that's, I think when I really was like, I love these fucking guys. I, this is my, you know, famously, not famously, nobody knows this third favorite band is, is what I would call them back then because I liked, I liked corn the most. At, at first, this is early. Yeah. Corn, then Deftones, then Limp Biscuit. And then Deftones took over Corn, and Corn got to be in the middle of those three bands. But those three bands were like the way they look at the way people look at Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer as like the, the big three. I think there's another one. I don't know. As, as people look at them that way, I looked at these guys as like, these guys are the guys. This is these are the these are the new metal like these are the great new this metal. This is the bands. Trinity, right? Yes. I mean and I mean I think people still kind of look at them like that, right? Like that's uh you know I think I think now because we're so far removed from it, people have different ideas of what the because I think a lot of people would put Lincoln Park in the top three over yeah. Slipknot biscuit and Slipknot and stuff like like I think there are bands now that would go over Limp Biscuit because people just 
we're inundated with like these guys suck they're terrible they you know everything they do sucks and like uh they just got kind of pushed out but i would still say that my trinity of new metal bands was this and then was those three corn limp biscuit deftones and then i would put incubus maybe Mm -hmm. in there too and you know at the time i would probably put icp in there but like it was just like yeah it was like a lot of uh it, it they were the third best which is actually not it sounds bad you know but it's not a, it was kind of bad but it was just if you had been there at that time and you're searching for this music and every time you get paid you're going to the record store and you're shopping for CDs and you're buying stuff that you read about in alternative press or that you read about in in some magazine right and and it all sucks then you start to like really start ranking bands because it's like fuck i bought so much stuff i didn't end up liking at that right. time right like a lot of shit like orange nine millimeter was a band that i had heard about i bought it and i was like eh, whatever therapy was a band oh that people yeah used with the qu with about. a question mark Th yeah therapy yeah people, <laughs> yeah people used to talk about them and i got that and that album fucking sucked and it just there was a lot of different things that came out in that core in that little period of time probably like 95 to 99 right that we're just not good. Downset was a band, which oh, I oh downset, yeah. I don't think I hated Downset. It just didn't grab me. So right. like, yeah. The this what I would say is the second stage bands at Ozfest '97 and '98. A lot of them were bad. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at Limp Biscuit here. <clears throat> They're touring. It does look like uh, the show you are referring to was on December 18th, 1997. Limp Biscuit at the Al Rosa Villa. That's it. In uh, in Columbus, Ohio, it was the uh, the the third last show on the tour. Ah. They played the uh, Laser 105.9 Clubhouse Christmas in Kansas City, and then they also played the Opium Den in Los Angeles, California, on New Year's Eve. Um, but yeah, I'm just looking at some of the set lists. It looks like they also covered Thieves by Ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems like a big one that they covered. They also covered Blind by Corn. I remember uh, that. And then they also covered Wicked by Ice Cube. I remember um, that. And then, yeah, I can see a set list right here where they covered Hound Dog, yeah. uh, which is amazing. And it's too bad you weren't at the uh, the show just one night earlier or two nights earlier at the industry in Pontiac, Michigan, because they sang Stuck with Stephen Richards from Taproot. Oh, so, oh, well, then that so you missed out on you missed out on that amazing uh, that amazing experience. But, yeah, I think they yeah. were just kind of fucking around because one, it's Columbus, Ohio. Two, it's a six seven hundred capacity venue, and they had probably been playing bigger places. In that, like, they were probably you know on festivals and stuff like that. And I think they were just like, "Fuck it, let's just have fun here," you know. Well, I also think like you kind of touched on something and I think we have talked about this a little bit before. I mean, we've certainly talked about it with other bands, but Limp Biscuit was definitely a band like right from the beginning that was like music is fun and this music is fun and we're going to have fun, which like most of the new metal bands were not like that. You know, most of like especially in that era, right? Like you think of Corn, you think of Deftones, you think of Rage. 
um, you know, there weren't bands that were like having fun up there. You know, yeah. it was like it was taken very serious. I mean, even for Deftones, who are like kind of, you know, a group of skateboarders from Sacramento, even their music was like still heavy and it was taken pretty seriously. And which is Limp Biscuit and, and Fred in particular was just kind of like, yeah, fuck it. You know, who let's have let's just have some fun. Let's wrap around. Let's have a good time. Like they definitely if the sort of holy trinity is corn deftones and limp biscuit they are sort of an interesting counterpoint to corn and deftones in that i think that they yeah they didn't take themselves too seriously they didn't take the music too seriously and they also had fred had this sense of and we've definitely talked about this before but he had this sense of like he wanted to be an icon like he wasn't you know i think all the other bands would have said like, you know, they would have done the sort of humble, oh, you know, it's about everybody in the band and it's just kind of like, you know, we're all on the same footing and we're all kind of cool guys and it's fine. It's like people always say this about hockey, that like hockey is the quote unquote humble sport, you know, and even the stars in hockey are always like, you know, oh, it's all about the team and I'm just one cog in the machine. I'm just one guy who cares. Whereas, you know, basketball you know, it's definitely a little bit more ego driven and I'm, I'm the, I'm the guy. And I think Fred had a little bit more of that. He had a little bit more of a rapper's sensibility. I think of like, I'm the clear front man of this band. I'm going to have a look. Uh, my look is going to be somewhat distinctive. I'm going to position myself as a hot guy. Um, you know, which I guess worked, uh, cause he obviously dated some very attractive, very famous people and your wife also loved him. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, it's funny cause like, I guess just being 13 years old at the time, I didn't think of Fred as like a hot guy, but I guess like looking back, I can see, I can see it kind of. But like I can remember in the moment when it was like Fred is dating Christina Aguilera, like what? No way, you know. Like it didn't even make sense, really. But then you look back and you're kind of like, okay, sort of like a bad boy. He's obviously positioned himself in a certain way. Like I, I kind of get it now as like a, you know, looking back on it as an older guy. But in the in the moment, very confusing. But yeah, I think they they definitely position themselves, even though the the subject matter of the music is quite visceral and in some cases quite vicious um i think there's definitely a sense even on this record significant other feels like much more of a party record than this one but even on this record there's a sense of like they're kind of just having fun with this yeah well yeah i mean it's way more heavy i think than i remembered it being and and the lyrics i mean i think also i was a a teenager that that was listening to this 18 probably when maybe seven yeah i was 18 17 when it came out i've told the story about how like i had a girlfriend who was really into rap music at the time so i was like you should check out this song and played indigo flow for her. and she just kind of had to act like oh yeah that's it's just like the rap I like, the 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 fucking Nelly and stuff like that. Um, she had to pretend like it wasn't bad, um, and she didn't really like it. So, like, 
I remember I, I was 18 and like this album was, it didn't seem as, as nasty as it does now. <laughs> when you listen to it, you're like, oh, geez, Fred. But I think he would also agree with that. And I think, you know, I even made, I guess not a joke earlier, but I even did make the point earlier that I made the point earlier that like Pickerington had, had purple you know, and, and we called them, we said certain things about them that you wouldn't say now. I think some of these songs, I, I, I feel like Fred probably wouldn't like do now. It, it seems even in 99, he was kind of regretted stuck, which is crazy because I mean, I loved that fucking song. Yeah, I think like, so to get into my personal history with this album, like it's actually not it is obviously surprising to think that like this album's biggest moment chart wise uh, was in 1999, but that was exactly how it worked for me. I mean, I was so young, like this comes out in July of 97. So I'm 11 when this record comes out. Um, So I have no concept of this. I'm not, you know, I have no idea of Limp Bizkit in 97. I'm probably still listening to like Blink 182 and Green Day Nimrod would have been like 96, I guess. And uh, Dude Ranch, I think, is 96 also. Might even be 97. Enema of the State's 99. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I would have been like in that moment with those records. So this wouldn't have been on my radar, like even remotely at all. And then obviously, you know, I've talked about I get into I get into new metal with Corn in 98. And then Significant Other in 99 is like huge for me and kind of similar to you where I think, you know, again, I've talked a lot on the show about how I didn't have the internet. Like it was just all about what was on much music and it was sort of, I had corn and no one else. You know, I had the Family Values 98 album. uh, So I would have been familiar with Limp Bizkit, but they also like the track list on the Family Values 98 tour, the three songs that are on that, CD are Cambodia, which isn't even on a Limp Bizkit record. Yeah. Um, and then there's how's uh, Jump Around. They do the Jump Around cover oh. and they and they do Faith. And I, those are the only and the Jump Around cover. They only do half of the song. They don't even do the full song. So Faith uh, and then Faith is on there. So like I had heard them on the Family Values 98. I was aware of who they were in 98. But then I wouldn't have really got into them until I saw the Nookie video. And then it was similar to you. It was like, oh, cool. I'm getting another one of these bands because Deftones weren't on my radar at the time either. And then, yeah, it was definitely like just loving Significant Other and then finding out, oh, this band has another album. And it's interesting because you're right. Like this album is so much heavier, um, but I don't. It, it's so much heavier, but it's not it wasn't inaccessible to me in a way. Like I think there were definitely bands at this time where if I had heard some of their earlier, heavier stuff, I wouldn't have connected with it. But even though this record is heavier for sure, I mean, it's easily Limp Bizkit's heaviest record. It wasn't a turnoff. Like I remember liking this record immediately. Like I, I remember thinking it was so good and not, out of the realm of possibility that this came from the same band that made Nookie or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like in the end, I ended up actually liking this album probably more than significant other, but probably in a sort of like hip 
hipster. I know that's weird to say with limp biscuit. Yeah, I'm a limp biscuit hipster. I'm a I'm a limp hipskit. Well, I really was. I really was in in a way that like I very much was like if people started to like this thing, then I was like fuck them. I I can't listen to this thing. Uh, And so by the time you know chocolate starfish comes out, I'm already kind of like eh, you know. I don't I don't need this fucking band. But uh three dollar bill y'all was just such a fucking important the whole thing is fucking so the cover I feel like is also very important. It's excellent. Yeah, it. it's very cool cover. Yeah. Like I think the whole thing is just like they drew me on the cover. You know what I mean? Like that's I think how I felt at the time was like, man, this is like this is just purely for me ross robinson's the producer which you know sometimes i shit on ross robinson or whatever like that's fine this record sounds good though this record sounds really good uh (laughs) but at the time hearing he was hearing that he was producing an album meant the world to me like i needed to hear everything he was doing so that was another thing this was out ahead on but like, even when you look at the reviews for this, I mean, I guess, like, Robert Criscow hated it, but I mean, the guy doesn't fucking like anything. You know what I mean? And, uh, oh, yeah, all the people. There were some good reviews for it, I thought. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. I actually, I love, I, I had a good time listening to this today when I listened to the, when I listened to it to do the show. I wasn't at first going to listen because I'm like, I'm fucking, you know, come on, man. I've, I've heard this album. I could, but I needed to listen to it and fucking realize there's so much stuff that I had forgotten about that fucking ruled, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, I I think like listening to this in 2023, what really stuck out for me is how developed the band is. Like, I know that they were a band for, like, quite a while before $3 Bill Y'all. Or at least, like, in part, like, they had been in bands together. Like, I think Fred and Sam were in a band together before Limp Bizkit. But um, I just, uh, to me, I that was what really struck me. Is, like, there's not, there's not a lot of touchstones at the time, right? You've got Korn, obviously. You've got Deftones. You've got Rage Against the Machine. But like you got Sugar Ray as well. Always yeah. important to Good always rappers. important to include Sugar Ray in there. But I, I think for me, that was what was the most striking. Is it really even though Limp Biscuit never makes another record that sounds like this, it's a very fully developed sound for the time period. And we've talked about this on the show a lot. But like there was never really a good Limp Bizkit imitator band like there just wasn't like nobody really could do what they were doing. Nobody really cracked that code. It was like people were chasing corn and Deftones more than they were chasing Limp Bizkit. And I think for a band that has such a unique sound with no real exact touchstones i mean maybe you'd say this album sounds closest to rage probably um you know with the sort of there's a lot of emphasis on the guitar there's more rapping than on other you know new metal records but 
I think that's what really struck me is like for a debut album, it sounds so unique, but also so developed. I think there's a few songs on here that are just okay and not great, but like that first, the first run from like pollution through to sour. And then you've also got faith in there too. It, they were, they just, they really had developed a sound that, you know, I think no one's really replicated. I think, I think Limp Biscuit weirdly, whether you love them or you hate them, are a very singular band. Like when a Limp Biscuit song is on, you know that it's Limp Biscuit. They're very singular sounding. And I think, yeah, that's what really struck me was like, fuck, they, they almost kind of had it already figured out right away. Like I think most of the other bands get better. Corn gets better. Deftones get better. You know, and Limp Biscuit do get better to an extent, but like this album sounds like a Limp Biscuit album, and they kind of knew what they were doing like almost immediately. Yeah, yeah, it does definitely sound like like I like this one. Pro, I I think at the time would maybe say three dollar or uh, significant other was better when it came out too. You know, because I remember hearing the. I mean, this album is more brian core than like the chocolate starfish and significant other like this one's more nasty and like i again the the misogynist stuff i i didn't clock that when i was like growing up and i may have i may have liked it because of that you know (laughs) which is you hate to say it but like i was just a very uh what's the word i was a very I was a very much like a uh, uh, angry, uh, emotional kid that didn't really ever say anything. You know what I mean? Like, I never told people how badly I felt or whatever. You know what I mean? And this album was one of those ones with corn and stuff. But this album was about, and that's the problem with it, is this album's about women. And, like, at the time when you're 17... 16 17 years old and you know you don't have a girlfriend or you like have some kind of a crush or something like that and it just like if you don't have healthy places to put your uh longing into or whatever then somebody like this like fred durst can come along and be like hey these fucking women right and then you're like uh yeah 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 you know which it, uh you know a lot of that comes up in like articles and and shit like that but like and i hate it i hate like this idea that like they caused something you know what i mean like that they not that they caused something but this idea that they like are are responsible for we had we did one article where they said trump it that like Limp Biscuit was responsible for Trump and stuff like that, but then <laughs> Woodstock that was all their fault too. And oh, I fucking finally found the demo tape I had. I was looking at uh, I was looking at what's it called uh, eBay for the demo tape I had, and it was uh, it's one hundred nineteen ninety five. So I won't be oh, jeez. Well, we all had a copy of it too. There was like a million bajillion of them, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's the same thing where they talk about you. There is that certain thing where, like, whenever you, whenever like the news would do a story on like white supremacist music, and they would be like, "Well, 
you know, they, they target angry people who then listen to it and then become like white supremacists. Now that I'm not calling limp biscuit, like white supremacists or even, you know, but you did hear them and identify with them. And especially, you know, if you were going through puberty, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like have those hormones. And I just, I, I remember, I always feel, I, I always think about it. These were like, just like for me, rather than being like, it was like an impotent rage. You know what I mean? I never said anything to anybody. I just would sit in my room and listen to stuck and say, yeah, yeah, fuck that shit. You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was 13 probably when I heard this for the first time. So it's like, you're not even, you're not having sex. You're not like even talking, even talking to girls really. And you're just like, yeah, I know exactly what this 25 year old guy is talking about. 100%. We are the same and I get this. And yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. And it's funny, like, pardon me, you know, I I think like I wouldn't have even wanted, like I, I wouldn't have wanted to have sex at that time. I wasn't, I was a late bloomer as far as that goes. Um, You made up for it by fucking and sucking a lot. I mean, I ended up losing my virginity quite young, but like I was a late bloomer to every sex that like I kind of wasn't really into sex until I was having sex almost like it was a weird. So it was like this strange thing where like I'm sure subconsciously I was like horny or, you know, you know, you're a 13 year old boy. Like I'm sure I, I, I definitely liked women and I knew that I wanted to like maybe kiss girls or something like that, but I never... I had no experience with girls whatsoever is basically what I'm saying. And I wouldn't have wanted to, I would have been scared. Like if a girl was like, I want to suck your dick. I would have been like, Nope, thank No, thank you. That's gross. I don't know what you're talking about. Like in this moment, I wouldn't have even wanted what Fred is like talking about, but I also would have been like mad. It's like this weird. It's like, it's kind of like what I guess we would say is like vol cell now, but like, I was not like, it was just this strange thing where you're just like, I am so, but I guess Valsel's not really angry. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I just was like, <laughs> it's just such a funny thing to think like, I wouldn't have wanted, I would have maybe wanted to have a girlfriend, but I wouldn't have wanted to like have sex with her. I wouldn't have wanted to, you know, I w- it wouldn't have been that serious, but I would have definitely listened to this record and been like, God, uh, yeah right man these women dude yeah. they won't they won't talk to me this girl i like at school doesn't talk to me in the hallway and i'm like listening to these so- sour and being like yeah I've, i get it man i get like it is very weird how this music hit this like weird center in a teenage in a straight teenage guy's brain, it just felt so strangely targeted at that, even though, yeah, we were, a lot of us were in a moment where it wasn't that relevant to us. <laughs> no, I mean, the young people specifically, I think when you're 17, 18, yeah, it's you're different just, for you, I think. Yeah, you're just like sort of mad at everybody, you know? I, I, I don't even know if I realized I was like mad at women at all i think i just was like fucking mad at everybody this was a lot more to my 
what's this was a lot more to my spoke a lot more to my experience because uh, I've talked about it. My parents weren't overly abusive or anything. They kind of just weren't around. You know what I mean? Uh, so the corn stuff was always kind of like, you know, I was mad at my stepmom all the time. Of course I was. But like when when like Jonathan Davis, the way that he sings about his life is so dire. And then like, for lack of a better term, Deftones are almost like, I mean, me, it's like, I'm trying to say meaningless, basically. Like none of their songs really have any meaning. They rule and they're good. And you could also make up. You could also, it's more poetic. I would say Deftones is like poetic. Yes. So like I didn't, I, I loved them, but I don't think I saw myself as them either. You know what I mean? Like, so when this comes out, it's like hitting me exactly at 17 years old. It's hitting the things that I'm thinking about in my room. And the guy's 25 and he's singing to like 13, 14, 15. You know what I mean? But like, man, when you're like 25, you're basically 15. It's like you're, you, you don't have that much more impulse control, maybe a little bit more wisdom, but, but not a ton more wisdom even at those ages. So I don't know. I, I think like, I don't know if this would be my favorite thing in the world if it came out now, but it didn't come out now. It came out at a different time in my life and it burrowed into my brain and it's just yeah. going to stay there. You know? Well, I think like one thing that's interesting too is I do wonder like how much Fred was just influenced by what else was going on, right? Like obviously he was a huge corn fan, loved what they were doing. You know, he's that's who he kind of targeted as a band that might help his band get successful. And I do wonder to what extent this is him just thinking like, well, this is what this music is. Because Limp Biscuit is never like this again, right? No. Like on significant other. You know, there is definitely a little bit. There are a few songs that are targeted at women or, you know, the sort of scornful X, you know, type trope. And then by Chocolate Starfish, that's basically gone. Most of Significant Other and Chocolate Starfish is just like, we're a famous band and I'm rapping and and singing about being famous and being cool, you know. And so I just wonder how much of this is not even Fred necessarily thinking about connecting with an audience. He's just thinking about, well, this is what this music is. This music is about like anger and like getting, yeah. getting pissed at shit. And it like, I guess anger. Is yeah, it's an anger is a good way of putting it. And like Fred, it seems like, had an okay life you know we don't really know a whole ton about his background or at least not as much as maybe we would about jonathan davis or Corey taylor or people who have been a little bit more for uh forthcoming with that information but it seems like generally speaking fred probably had a pretty decent life so he's just like well what are the things i can get angry at well you know i've had some women who have broke up with me so like, yeah. I guess I'll just get, yeah, that's fine. I'll get angry at that because, and even like counterfeit is like a good example, right? That's of a like, funny one. 
he's mad at bands that were copying his style, but they're not a famous band. So like, that's a very funny one as well. It's like also, this arguably, imaginary enemy. <laughs> arguably also like riding on the coattails of other bands. You know yes. what I mean? Like being mad because people are ripping you off, but being also like, we should do a corn type thing. Yeah, it's totally. We should. Oh, I should tattoo. Try to tattoo corn so uh, corn can get me famous. Yeah, it says Limp Biscuit was inspired to write counterfeit after local bands began to copy their style. According to West Borland, they saw this little thing we built, and they were like, "Oh, let's get baggy pants and dress kind of like hip hoppy, and you know, play heavy metal and rap." Five or six bands just popped up out of nowhere that became these, you know, groups that were trying to sound like us. It was ridiculous. That's where the song Counterfeit came from. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, count, counterfeits funny in the same way that like only God knows why by Kid Rock is funny. Like no actual reason to sing this song about how famous I am and trap. And that's exactly what this was, right? Counterfeit is like something he made up in his head. I, he doesn't name any of the bands. You never hear about any of the bands. So it's just something he made up. But I also remember really buying into that song for some reason, just kind of being oh, like, yeah. being like, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. It's, it's a great song. It's a great song. Like, obviously, just the music is a, a great. I mean, it's to me, one of Limp Bizkit's probably top five songs. I, I love Counterfeit, but like, it's also because I think what it is, though, is Fred's talking about a very specific thing, but it does have that kind of corn relatability. You know, like Jonathan Davis is also talking about very specific things that happened to him. But you can think to yourself like, OK, that exact thing didn't happen to me, but I do fight with my parents so I can still get you know i can get my feelings out on this one and with counterfeit he's just talking about like people being fake so yeah. like when you're 13 or you know when i was listening to this i'm 13 years old or 12 years old or whatever of course i think everybody's fake ah, everybody's mean to me they're fake and they're stabbing me they're talking shit about me behind my back and they're all yeah they're wearing a mask they think they're so cool they you know, but I know they're not that cool. And, you know, it's like it very much has that quality of it doesn't have to be about someone directly copying your style or what you wore to school or whatever. It can just be like, oh, yeah, this I used to be friends with this guy. And now I'm not because he's a little fucking he's a fake. He's a fake ass, you know, whatever you would say. <laughs> or like pollution. Right. Is is this song of. Like, I, I'm sure he's singing about like parents being mad at him and like a children of hundred percent yeah situation. But when you hear it, you just hear, uh, well, my mom and dad are always telling me this isn't good music, and they're telling me to turn it down. So I don't like that. I don't like them. So I'll listen to pollution. Like every song on here, I have said this in the past. Okay, the song sour. They should use that in a fucking Sour Patch Kids commercial. Because <laughs> one minute you're sweet, the next minute you're sour. I would, I would buy more Sour Patch Kids than I already buy, which I already buy a lot of them. So, 
I Sour is such a good song. I love Sour. I don't think I disliked anything on here. And a song that I would have fucking hated growing up. The Everything, the last song. Yeah. I actually love that song listening to it today. I thought it was so fucking good. Yeah, it's 16 minutes long, but it's uh, it's very atmospheric. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a different version of Limp Bizkit for sure. Um, yeah, for me, the album backdives a little bit. I think Stalemate is like only okay, um, and it's six minutes long. Uh, and Stink Finger is also only okay. Oh, I love Stink Finger when he goes, Stinky Finger. Yeah, you would like that. Stinky. But not for me. But obviously, Faith is amazing. So it's like this weird thing where you're like, okay, I love the first six songs. Then I get to Stalemate. It's like kind of too long and it's like just okay. And then Clunk is pretty good. And then Faith is amazing. And then it's like the rest is fine, but none of it really stands out. But you're right. Like back in the day, I'm sure I never listened to everything. I, I might have listened to it once and been like, this is 15 minutes long and it is not that heavy and that, no, I'm out. <laughs> I always think about that for people who like Pantera, the uh, Planet Caravan cover at the end of Far Beyond Driven is like, this fucking album is like one of the heaviest things you've ever heard and at the end, it's like this really soft song and you're like, what the fuck is going on? You just skip it. You're like, I'm not listening to that. I'm yeah. sure I did Especially that. Especially when Pantera. it's at the end, right? You're just like, okay, oh, yeah. the album's over now. I've listened to the album. In my mind, this song is not even on it. I'm I, st- mean, I stop it here. I listened to this album on cassette. Like, that is the way that I picture listening to $3 Bill, y'all. When I was younger, was a cassette in my wife's car because obviously she liked Limp Biscuit. It was easy to like. She didn't like Corn as much. And she didn't like a couple couple of the other bands she liked deftones and limp biscuits so we would play it but i i'll always see i will always see it as you know a cassette in a um what's it called in a 76 nova like driving around town so uh that's another thing that's like kind of cool i i can't think of any other albums where i would like i really saw it as like a cassette kind of thing you know most of the time i bought cds at the time but we didn't have a cd uh player in the car so i don't know i think that's really cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah i definitely did not have this on cassette i didn't i was really like the tail end of the cassette era like i think the only album i can remember that was like my own album that i had on cassette was jagged little pill by Alanis Morissette. I remember oh. I got I got that for Christmas one year. Weird album. And uh I well, she's Canadian too, so like we had all the, you know, the CRTC regulations, so she was getting played on much music and the radio constantly. Um I've talked about this on the show before, but in case you don't remember or you didn't hear the previous episodes, in Canada, there is a government edict that if you have a radio station or a music video channel or something that plays like Canadian art or whatever, uh, a certain percentage of it has to be by Canadian artists. So if you had this cross section of good Canadian artists that also got popular in America, it was like, fucking over because we listened to a lot of bands that were not good and never got famous just because they were canadian you love cereal joe oh cereal Cereal joe 
big sugar, big rack, moist, uh, moist, moist. Yeah. Love it. They were a good band. Actually. I think they might've gotten bigger if they, you know, were, were if they, if they, if they were American and if their band name wasn't moist, um, I mother earth, Econoline crush, treble charger, uh, oh, I've heard of Econoline Crush. They have one, one very good song, All That You Are. <laughs> then there was like uh, a sort of can, can, Canadian like Lilith Fair sort of like string of women. You had like Amanda Marshall, Holly McNarland. Holly uh, McNarland. Yeah, her album was quite good too. The I can't I think it's called Stuff, maybe, but she had she she was pretty she was on Big Shiny Tunes too. And uh yeah, she had a few she had a few good good tunes but yeah anyway there was this like whole swath of canadian bands that i'm sure like most americans have never heard of but then yeah if you had like uh you know like a nickelback or a shania twain or an alanis morissette or a celine dion where they were like worldly famous you just get you because they were like this is such a bonus holy shit this is like a hit song but they're also canadian it's like we're getting like a two for one and so alanis was just so huge and uh i still love jagged little pill i think that album is incredible and uh i saw alanis last summer and it was fucking awesome it was like the 25th anniversary or 30th anniversary i think of it uh no 25th it got delayed because of covid so it was technically like the 27 because i think it came out in 95 so it's like technically the 27th year anniversary but she was doing it for 25 anyway it was incredible she rocks I yes, bought that for a girl yeah. I was dating, and I bought myself one hot minute by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> the two genders. Yeah. <laughs> In Great 1995, album. those were the two genders. But yeah, uh, I so cassettes were not... Uh, yeah, that was not for me. I, I got pretty into CDs. I remember the first CD I bought with my own money was Our Lady Peace, um, Superman's Dead. No, that's the song. The album's called Clumsy. There we go. Um, and then, yeah, shortly after that, I hit my new metal phase. So I definitely had this on CD, but you're right as well. Like I remember the album art being so cool to me and the back of it too. It's like the drawing by Wes and it's all like the kind of weird head and Limp Biscuits cover art. I mean, obviously chocolate starfish, it falls off the map, but like so the cover art for significant other was also so cool. I mean, we talked about that when we did the significant other episode, but they really had like, that's what I mean. It just, this whole thing is it's so impressive as a package. I mean, I know when we've covered Limp Biscuit before, we've talked a lot about, you know, Fred Durst being sort of like a business genius and like a very smart marketing guy. But yeah, I mean, you, you see this album cover, you understand everything you need to know about Limp Biscuit. You know exactly how it's going to sound. Like you said, Brian, you might even look at it and go, that's me on the cover. Like just yeah. a kind of bearded guy in Jinkos. Like it's definitely, they just, they knew, like they just knew right away who they were and so many smart decisions. Covering Faith was such a smart decision. It's so good. Um, and, and such a unique entry point, I think, into the mainstream. Yeah, there's just a lot of really cool shit on this record. Like they yeah. they really knew what the hell they were doing, man. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I I really liked listening to it today. It was so fucking good. Uh so I love it. I like all the songs on this album, even Indigo Flow, which one of is not really a song. <laughs> one of the things though that I got to do in my career. Uh, is performing Jacksonville 
and then go up on stage and say, uh, you know, uh, fuck, I'm, I'm now drawing a blank on Jacksonville. Jacksonville's on the map. Line them up, Cheetah. Like, I got to do that whole line on stage. And it was embarrassing. It felt embarrassing. But it was like, I have to do this. <laughs> That's kind of new metal in general. It's kind of the impetus of this podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's embarrassing, but we had we had to do it. Um, what would you say is your favorite song on this record? Because I think you know it's a different answer for a lot of different people. I'd say clunk, clunk, clunk. clunk. I think clunk, it's probably really to tell you the truth. Okay, uh, I, 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 I like Stink Finger. Um, fuck. I always forget which song it is that has like a rap in the middle that I really like. It might be stalemate, but also today, the thing that really grabbed me was uh pollution. Cause I loved that fucking understand. Yeah. I like it. You'll probably never understand. Like that is so nineties yeah. mosh pit fucking yeah. music you know it's perfect it's just there's so many al- songs on this fucking album that you can sing live and and have a lot of fun with even indigo flow even leech which is a bad song an actively <laughs> bad song yeah it's not a great song yeah yeah i uh i mean counterfeit i think is my favorite song uh but i do like all those for I mean the first song track is just an intro, but that first like pollution counterfeit stuck nobody loves me sour like I love nobody loves me too maybe I'll go eat worms yeah my dad used to say that to me when I was a kid that's so funny to me um, I love that part I mean stuck is so good too I mean I know it is mis- misogynistic and angry but it's also so funny my favorite part of stuck is where. Fred is like yelling the whole thing in the, in the end, he's like getting so angry, but then he like sings the word whore. Like very, he's like, you, Oh yeah. (laughs) That that part of it is he's like, he's like losing his mind for like 30 seconds before that. And then out of nowhere, he's the, you on the demo. He does not do that. So hard on the demo. He just screams it. That was one of the things where I was like, Oh man, you know, (laughs) I wish he didn't do that. I wish he had done you whore. You know, he yelled it. And it was just such a surprise when I heard right. it. Uh yeah. And then I think Faith is also you you have to give it up to Faith, you know. I remember my 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 big faith story is speaking of cassettes, actually. Me and a friend, I think I've probably talked about this on the show before, but me and a friend used to wrestle in his backyard on this trampoline. And uh, we had like created characters and everything. And we would do these like elaborate matches. It was just me and him. It was not a backyard federation or it was just, I would go over to his house and we would wrestle on his trampoline for like two hours. And it was so fun. And uh, he, uh, and so we, we started doing entrance music and I remember using my like tape deck, which was attached to my CD player. So you could tape stuff off the CDs where my entrance music was just the beginning of faith just the beginning opening the like that would start playing and then it would immediately jump to get the fuck up and then that's when i would like come out 
to the like end part where the, the end like freak out of faith. And that was my entrance music uh, for my two person backyard trampoline wrestling federation with my friend Adam. Uh, we have to start somewhere in our wrestling career. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I started and finished. It was all <laughs> we learned a few things, though. Uh, the first one is that, uh, well, he, he had monkey bars that we pulled up to the trampoline. So that was like our top rope, which was awesome. And then the other key message we, or key thing we learned is, uh, Frisbees, great weapon. Uh, cause they all kind of have that like soft indent in the middle. So yeah. when you get hit with a Frisbee, it sounds super loud. It makes that like boink sound when you get hit with it, but the middle has a lot of give, so it doesn't hurt at all. So that was our, like, that was our weapon of choice is we would just fucking smoke each other in the head with Frisbees. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We tried to do a backyard fed. We even wrote stuff down and shit like that, but we didn't know wrestling was fake yet. So we just kept getting hurt <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> so you were like fully punching each other. I got fucking pile drived on a fucking, uh, I got pile drived on a stump in the backyard and like it was bad. It hurt very bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys were doing legit, like very dangerous. You were hitting moves. each other and doing wrestling moves on each other. Yep. That's hilarious. I think, I mean, Adam and I, I'm sure we got a little bit hurt, but we were on a trampoline, first of all, so that helps. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. We My definitely fucking buy one because they thought we would trampoline into the pool and that would be unsafe. And, you know, we would have. But you definitely would still have. Bought yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, I, I remember his finisher was the tombstone. So we definitely did like pile drivers, but it was onto a trampoline. So I feel like that wasn't. That wasn't. No, like, no, I think pile drivers are still pretty dangerous to do. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. You definitely could still break somebody's neck, but For I sure. don't think I don't think we ever did a traditional pile driver. We weren't strong enough. I don't yeah. think to do like a tombstone's a little different because uh, the guy that you're it's being done to can kind of help you by like grabbing around your waist. Um, but yeah, I mean, sure, we did shit that like had long-term effects on my body, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm uh, sure. I'm but sure. it's fine now, you know, whatever. Um, okay. Let's move on to the articles. We have like a billion articles here. Um, you know, uh, some of them are from the exact time period. Some of them are from later on looking back uh, on this record. I'll just get this one out of the way. Cause it's very of the time period. Uh, even though it, it's from 2023, but it's just such a funny quote. It's from Carrie King of Slayer, who I know you don't really like Slayer anyway, Brian. I mean, hey, neither, do, neither do I. Uh, but this quote is very, very funny. This is from a 2017 interview. Carrie King said that new metal, he hated new metal so much that he actively considered quitting music altogether. And the exact quote was, I was really jaded for a while back in the late 90s, he explained. I couldn't understand why Limp Bizkit was big. It affected me. I didn't want to play music. I thought, if this is the way that music's going, then fuck this. I hate it. That's why Jeff Hanneman wrote so much of our 1998 album, Diabolus and Musica, which is too funky for me. Uh, that, is the, that is Slayer's famous quote-unquote new metal album. Um, and... Uh, incredibly hilarious that uh 
he wanted to quit music over Limp Biscuit and said that in 2017. I can understand in the time being like, I hate this. This makes me want to quit. But with 20 years of hindsight, you're still saying that you almost quit because of Limp Biscuit. A guy that is just like a huge asshole that like courts Nazis to listen to his music is like, I almost quit because I didn't like one of the bands. I really didn't understand what they were doing. Like, I, I, there are definitely like comedians and bands I don't like, but I most of the time can figure out why they're popular. And to me, Limp Biscuit is like, if you couldn't figure out why Limp Biscuit was popular, you might be really fucking stupid. Yeah. I mean, like, I, it's very obvious to see how they got popular. Also, there is a documentary about the thrash movement, right? Called Murder in the Front Row. Yeah on uh, I believe it's on Amazon still and they talk about how like they would wear the battle jackets uh the like vests with their favorite bands on them and that if people didn't believe you really liked the band they'll beat the shit out of you for being a poser and I just thinking about this fucking guy that is part of this thing saying oh it's frat boy rock it's like yeah but I mean one of your you collect fucking I think it's either him or somebody else collects Nazi memorabilia and fucking encouraged fans to beat up other fans when you were coming up. So I'm sorry. I just can't take you. I can't take your offense too seriously. No, I certainly can't either. Uh, Brian, you want to hit us with something here? <laughs> Washington Post. Oh, I love this one. This is uh, from. This is from close to the time period. Uh, what I found was there wasn't a ton of stuff uh, about $3 bill y'all specifically, but uh, when we did the significant other episode, it was the very first episode ever of this show. And I mistakenly at the top, <clears throat> pardon me, Jesus Christ. I mistakenly at the time thought that we would only do one article per show. So in the very first episode of the POD cast, we covered only one article about significant other. So some of these articles are, are more from the significant other time period, but they kind of encapsulate $3 bill y'all as well. So anyway, this is uh, from the Washington post. It's called rocks hostile takeover it was written October 3rd, 1999 by Alona Wartofsky. Alona is takes no prisoners. And we'll or I guess Alana. That. It might be Alana. It's Whatever. probably Alana. Yeah. They don't take any prisoners. As Fred Durst approaches, the screams intensify. You think he's one of the petty, pettily, critically, critically lubricious Backstreet's boys, not the lumpy, heavy, tattooed front man of scruffy metal rap band Limp Biscuit. Like they fucking she just called him lumpy. And an I article. Think, no, but I think she's saying like he's good looking and he's not lumpy like you like you i guess you're no you're right she is calling yeah. him lumpy but also that he's hot in the face i guess well, he's got like a lumpy body but his face looks like a backstreet boy she says which reminds him as durst managers stroll through the stadium backstage at last weekend's hf festival durst begins rhyming check this as for woodstock you'll learn treat people like rats and you'll burn that's from a new song I wrote, he says, with evident pride. I wonder why that line never made it into a song. Yeah. Well, the evident pride part, where it's yeah. like, yeah, I don't know why he's so proud of that. 
you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, the metal hip-hop hybrids have, oh, I love this sentence. This is such a picture of the time. Yeah. Uh, when, when the mainstream started looking at this music, right? Yeah. The metal hip-hop hybrids have various tags. Rap and roll, never. Rap hip-hop and roll, rock, never. Hip-hop, never, etc. None of those were... We, None of those were. She just invented those three words herself. Hemp rock is almost more used than hick hick hop. Nobody likes it. But hick it's most, hop, yeah, no, yeah. But its most visible artists, Limp Bizkit, Corn, Raging Against the Machine, and Kid Rock, emphasize more rock than rap. Though they do borrow hip hop's urban swagger, scratching DJs, sing song vocals, and with dismaying regularity, its misogyny. Like Jesus Christ. Which is true. I mean, and and this article is just so fucking mean that like I I have so much during its live shows. The members of Limp Biscuit often portray themselves as underdogs or as something else. For last summer's Ozfest tour, Limp Biscuit stage set consisted of an enormous commode. I love this line from Fred. <laughs> yeah. We're coming out of a gigantic toilet that's on stage like pieces of poop. <laughs> like i knew what this article was gonna fucking be yeah you know what i mean like i think he had he had started to get hip to like what these articles are actually gonna end up being and fucking uh started fucking around with them we came out of a toilet like pieces of poop is such a funny way to phrase that oh yeah i love that for sure um and yeah they definitely uh like yeah, she has to touch on the misogyny here as well. Uh, Limp Bizkit's relationship. Sorry, go ahead. Something that bo- bothered me about every single one of these articles is the, and we should have talked about it maybe even in the body of the show, but now we're talking about the article. So let's, is the, the counterfeit thing uh, where apparently interscope paid a portland oregon radio station to play yeah. the single counter yeah as a commercial though which yeah. is it said that it was not paid illegal. for yeah it said it was paid like they would have a message before and after the song saying um saying hey this is paid for by flip interscope i don't think i mean i guess in oregon and in one place that might have had something to do with their success. I don't think that like, I mean, they weren't playing it here. They weren't playing it where you were. They weren't playing it in New York. They're playing in fucking Oregon. You know what I mean? And it's not like that song is this big legendary thing. Like counterfeits just an album cut on fucking $3 bill y'all. And I also think like, it's hard back then it's way fucking different now you know like because you know i would say like me and you aren't doing what we do uh for a living if we live back then because it was nearly impossible to get on the radio to do a talk radio show and at the time it was also hard people will not believe this but at the time that three dollar billy all came out these fucking radio stations were not fucking playing this stuff. My brother, uh, I remember my little brother was staying a night with his friends and they were calling the radio station and they called it like 
one o'clock in the morning and asked if they play corn. And the fucking person on the other line laughed at him and said no and hung up. Like, I I don't know. I, I like the hustle, to tell you the truth. And, and like, uh, I don't know how much of that. I think that what broke this band was faith. That For sure. Yeah, and definitely. being on tour with corn helped to also break this band. I don't even know if that really made a difference, but it comes up in every article as though to treat these guys like industry plants, which they're fucking not. They're from Jacksonville, Florida. Fred's dad's a fucking cop and his mom's a secretary at a fucking uh, Lutheran church. They didn't say what the other guy's parents did, but they don't come off to me like rich kids. You know, this was just a way for people who were never going to like this fucking music to never give them any credit at all totally yeah and i think like fred's response to it is pretty good like he did talk about you know he kind of said like oh maybe that wasn't the best idea you know um uh, he says uh in in a rolling or sorry in a book there's a guy who wrote an entire book about limp biscuit and we can't access it because it's a book but one of the quotes is on the wikipedia page and and fred said it worked but it's not that cool of a thing and I think that that was sort of his overall kind of, you know, I, I think what Fred is kind of hiding here is like there was a shit ton of payola happening at the time. Yeah. So the fact that they were like overt about it and saying, hey, look, this was a paid thing that the label did. We didn't want to be because there's this is still in sellout era. Right. So like yeah. Limp Biscuit couldn't have been found out of doing payola. That would have been a horrible move for them but to just say like yeah whatever they it's basically a paid ad like what are we supposed to do um you know it comes up in the rolling one of the rolling stone articles and all he says was i thought it was a smart move he says with a dismissive rattle of the rolex because they say earlier in the interview he's wearing an eight thousand dollar rolex which is very funny to me as well uh, but we'll get to that article in a sec back to the washington post uh the you know and and look in 1997 or i guess this article is from 1999 you want to push a band on misogyny like that's probably good it's probably like a good thing for furthering the conversation but it's also for the time period it, you know you're just kind of they're trying to do like a gotcha thing here which is very you know it comes across as a little bit like you're really just trying to find a way to bury this band in the dirt uh, Limp Bizkit's relationship with its female fans can be confounding. During the band's performances, Durst encourages the girls who bear their breasts, a trend very much in evidence at Woodstock 99 and at last week's HF Festival. So many titties, he gloats at RFK. What's up with all these beautiful breasts tonight? Durst doesn't think such compliments delivered from the stage result in any kind of peer pressure. I didn't ask anybody to show me their tits, he insists later. I commented on the women that were showing their tits. Girls just do it on their own and the guys egg them on. I'm just acknowledging that. I wouldn't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. Some girls are modest. Some girls aren't. The ones that aren't are usually flashing their tits. It doesn't get them anywhere. So I guess they're doing it for fun, which is like, that's a very fair answer. And if he's not specifically saying it, I think that's fine too. And then literally she admits, but when pressed, Durst concedes that the topless girls at Limp Bizkit shows might make the, quote, modest girls uncomfortable. I'm sure it probably does, he says, but if you don't believe in that or support it and no one's making you do it, then just ignore it. 
Try to ignore the things in life that you don't like, if at all possible. But everybody who seems to dislike Limp Biscuit seems to not be able to ignore us for some reason. Yeah, he's right about that. And I, I, I think, you know, when I look back at those concerts in the 90s, I mean, they act like Woodstock 99 was like the beginning of the show your tits chant. I mean, the very first concert I went to, they were chanting show your tits. It was a Megadeth concert with corn. Uh, you know what I mean? Just people did it at the time and it sucks and it's gross. And I didn't know how bad it was, but like it was also seemed, I think, to to. It's a weird thing where like things seem normal to people. Fred Durst doesn't come off like the smartest guy in the fucking world. And this is just something that was going on at his shows. And I don't know if he never said, you know, show. Yeah, your right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't I don't think I, I, I don't think I remember any of the bands really playing into that. And I assume for some of these bands, it's also sort of embarrassing that it was happening because it just makes them look like sex guys on stage and shit like that. But I mean, people were showing their tits at fucking corn concerts too. And like at, at for all sure. of it, it was like, that era. It was a wrestling show thing too. And like, yeah. 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 Um, so the, uh, the, what do I got here? I have a, uh, so the other part I had was, uh, the band has been so they explained the counterfeit thing, right? And uh, then he goes, The band has been on MTV staple ever since, but perhaps Limp Biscuit's biggest impact on pop culture has to do with the way. Oh, no, you just read that. God damn it. Oh, no, <laughs> no, it's not. It cultivated its female audience. Thrashing angry metal has traditionally been the province of boys, but during the spring of 98, the band embarked on a promotional tour dubbed Ladies Night Cambodia with women admitted free. Uh, and then she says the Cambodia part was inspired by Fred Durst's favorite movie, quote, Apocalypse Now. Of course. Like he could never like Apocalypse Now. But I'll give you a little bit. Uh, I was furious about Ladies Night Cambodia because I was because broke. you didn't get in for free. Yes, I was broke. I couldn't get in. And I was mad. They didn't come here for that tour either but i just remember thinking like what if they came through and i don't have money to go but they're gonna let like chicks go in for free what the hell man but that is kind of a canny move by him and bars do it all the very time. canny very canny and i mean even honestly like you know i i think just to go back to what you were saying about the you know show your tits thing or whatever like i think even if fred did encourage it at some point the answer he's giving here is a very good and reasonable answer there would be other artists who would not have handled it in that kind of way and then i think here this is really interesting this is from 1999 so obviously like with a couple documentaries that have come out about woodstock you know i think there's been this sort of uh, reappraisal of everything that happened at woodstock and so this was really like stuck out to me uh as like this is kind of right after Woodstock happened. This interview is in August '99. Woodstock was in July. Um, you know, I, I think his response to it is great, and and kind of shows that he sort of had the same view on it the whole time. This is a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. He says I didn't see anybody getting hurt. You don't see that when you're looking out on a sea of people, and the stage is 20 feet in the air, and you're performing, and you're feeling your music. How do they expect us to see something bad going on? Durst says the event's promoters need to take responsibility for the Woodstock debacle. 
Woodstock was about making some money and getting it the quickest, easiest way they could get it on and down and done, he says. A lot of people were hurt. A lot of people were scarred for life. A lot of people experienced panic in situations and things going on because of them. After the riots, MTV personality Kurt Loder told Entertainment Weekly that Durst encouraged the mayhem at Woodstock. There was a hateful, hostile feeling coming off the crowd in waves. Kids were throwing bottles at each other and at security guards and stagehands. It was just ugly and out of control, and Fred Durst just exploited that and jacked it up. Durst doesn't accept that. He insists that he and Limp Bizkit are blameless. They needed someone to point the finger at. They needed a scapegoat, he says. They're not going to put it on the dumbass who handed out candles to everybody and said, let's capture a moment. I bet everybody's going to light them and hold them up. After these living conditions, after everything that happened, are they going to do that or are they going to burn it down? They're going to burn it down. And then afterwards, everyone ripped us apart for two weeks straight, he says. It was everywhere. And I would just be like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, he's right. He's right. And they, they, that was one of the things that sort of pissed me off about those documentaries more than anything was that like they did let those promoters off the hook and those promoters are scumbags. They had already done two huge show where the living conditions were fucking horrible. They just got lucky that it wasn't a hundred fucking degrees outside and aren't on a tarmac for, for that, for Woodstock 99. It happened because of that, you know, uh, and he's right. He's fucking totally right. And I still couldn't believe when they made those documentaries that they were still buying into that bullshit about, you know, the, the, oh, Limp Biscuit played break stuff and it made everybody go crazy 24 hours later, you know, cause that's also the thing that, you know, you, you point out that it did happen 24 hours later. So I don't actually know uh what the timeline is for the people that have this belief there is uh so i did the rolling stone q and a i read yep. that so this one is from uh this one is by lorraine ali from march 4th 1999 <laughs> and it's just the title is just q and a fred durst truly one of the funniest things is he says he's celibate <laughs> and, really good uh, yeah she goes, what do you mean by celibate? And he goes, uh, well, not for the rest of my life, but I don't fuck around anymore. I really want to find the girl I'm going to marry. I think I just fucked too much when I was younger. <laughs> I abused it with all my old girlfriends. We'd fuck five times a day. I love the idea of like, yeah, I think I'm just celibate because um, I'm tired of sex. Like, it's like the Weezer, like tired of sex. Like, oh, I just... And he doesn't say, like, I fucked a bunch of groupies either. It's the, like, oh, with my ex-girlfriends, I would have sex five times a day, and now I'm tired of having sex. Which, which, anybody who was having sex as, like, a teenager was fucking five times a day. That's, like, part of the thing, you know? Uh, I didn't get sick of it, ever. (laughs) 100%. I also love, from this Q&A... Uh, what did you do last night? I was watching the Mike Tyson fight at Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell's house. I know Goldie's daughter, Kate Hudson, which is, that's very funny. I guess Kate Hudson maybe wasn't an actor yet or wasn't as super famous because yeah, you, you wouldn't been... have, you wouldn't have had to explain that Kate Hudson is Goldie Hawn's daughter very, you know, much farther after that. And then this was very funny to me. Would that have happened before you became famous? Fuck no. This kind of shit I get off on. I'm at parties with Jack Nicholson, Dana Carvey. <laughs> cool. I love that in 1999, 
Jack Nicholson and Dana Carvey were on the same level of fame to Fred Durst. I'm at places where they're where they hang out. I'm on all the A lists. You get rock star parking. Yeah, I like the parking. I like that. I you just get good parking, man. When you're fucking, I, I get off on this shit. I can park wherever the fuck I want, man. I don't even believe that to tell you the truth, because I've performed live at very big shows and I never get free parking anywhere ever. I'm not never. Fred Durst big, but you know, I've performed for 500 people and not had a parking spot. So, uh, billboard, the article now, billboard, okay, yeah, is you, article. you love, you love this one. This is, uh, this is really good. This one is from, uh, this is recent. Uh, so this one was, uh, well, sort of recent. It was from July 1st, uh, 2017, Night ten. This was twenty. Uh, sorry, twenty years ago. So it's the twenty-year anniversary of three-dollar bill, y'all. As we know, it came out July first, ninety-seven. Written by William Goodman. The article is titled "Twenty Years Ago: Limp Biscuits Three-Dollar Bill, Y'all Introduced the World to Fred Durst's White Rage." And then the the lead is nineteen ninety-seven was a banner year for angry white dudes. So I want to first say this. I'm not going to read the part where the guy says these guys are. This guy might have led to Trump. That is a very, very funny part, though. It is very funny. I'm not going (laughs) to read that. Their label. Oh, so this is just another way of taking the shot at him for the $5,000, which, by the way, we didn't even explain, like, what it was. This is a perfect explanation. Their label, Interscope Records, had paid Portland, Oregon radio station 101.1 KUFO $5,000 to play the song 50 times as a paid advertisement it apparently worked the lp proved to be the band's breakthrough reaching number 22 then there was the supercharged cover of george michael's faith of all songs what i don't what everybody was doing ironic covers back then i, I don't with guitarist Wes borland's signature harmonic style and plenty of vinyl scratching from dj lethal it's certainly a unique interpretation and it became omnipresent among disaffected 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 <laughs> mtv adult high school kids that so, sounds like what fear factory would have called one of their albums true true but that article the, the trump thing is just don't do that anymore no. hey writers out there don't do the trump thing it's silly it makes you look truly fucking silly when you so say silly this thing from the 90s led to trump you know somebody i actually posted that that little passage on twitter and somebody was like maybe if there was angry music for those dipshits to put their rage at maybe there wouldn't they wouldn't be involved with politics and i'm like hey you know but totally well he keeps going on here i i like all this stuff too with their in your face sound and image the biscuit became the lighthouse for a genre and its attitude borland wore outlandish body paint and outfits on stage and durst became a tragic fashion icon of sorts with his backwards baseball cap natty goatee and baggy jinko shorts and everyone in america knew a durst he was the national avatar and representative of that kid in neighborhoods from coast to coast. You know, that punk kid who was often shirtless, ears pierced, riding a BMX bike, bumping Tupac and smoking Marb Reds. Hell, the $3 bill y'all cover art is essentially a graffiti style doodled self-portrait of that kid drawn in Friday school detention, of course. It's like, fuck. That kid sounds cool. First of all, <laughs> second of all, shut up! Like, what is what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Just like the most loserish way of, 
you know, oh, you knew that kid that maybe kind of like grew up a little bit poor. Uh, that's who this album was for. You in a rough house, of shit. Yeah, like in a, in a rough home, and and you know whatever redneck uh, fucking part of the country. It's just like this guy's like kind of a piece of shit because he grew up. Like people didn't think about it back then. They would just shit on him as being rednecks. But like people with tough childhoods, you know, do come out with some tough stuff it, it's not yeah and if you like like rich kid no did. and i love he's then he starts talking about trump and then there's a quote from that biography the best way to get our message across is through shock value durst told music journalist colin devonish in the biography limp biscuit that's what grabs people getting people to react by showing something negative hoping something positive will come out of it sound familiar yeah trumpy it's, yeah that, it must Shut be trump up. This guy must be Trump. And then this just, last one is Jacoby Shaddix from Papa Roach because he has a whole thing where he's talking about how even people in the genre hated him or whatever. Jacoby Shaddix, singer for Papa Roach, blamed Durst for New Metal's negative image, which, by the way, when you read this quote, Jacoby Shaddix is not blaming Fred for that at all. This is the quote. A lot of people didn't like Fred Durst, he told El Paso, Texas radio station KLAQ. Really and truly, that was real bad, and everybody was hating on him. And he was kind of like, why you want to hate me? And so he was kind of the poster boy for the genre. And so if people wanted to take pot shots at it, it was easy, you know? It sure was slash is. What yeah. a fucking dumb way to end the paragraph, number one. And number two, Shaddix did not, is not blaming Durst in there. He's just saying people hated Fred Durst, and if you wanted to hate on New Metal, you could hate on Fred. In nowhere does he say, fuck Fred, this is all Fred's fault. Like, it just, what a funny misreading of that quote. This yeah. guy well, sucks. Like, William guy, Goodman, get fucked. Yeah, I, yeah, William Goodman. I found his Twitter, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, but he looks exactly like every journalist I've ever met in my <laughs> entire life. Um, and then we have one last. Well, I couldn't get into the Hartford one, which sucks. I, I actually oh. did want to finish that one. But I do have a lot of stuff from the Rolling Stone article, which is yeah, great. a tour de force. So if you want to... Yeah, the Hartford one, I'm only going to do... I'm going to give you like a little, just a little piece of it. It's from the Hartford Current. Uh, and this is from October 24th, 1997. So this would have been two months before you saw them at the Alro Sevilla. Uh, and the performance, or sorry, the headline is Limp Biscuit Performance Strums Mostly Anger. Um, and then this is, <clears throat> there's just two funny quotes here. He's the, whoever, uh, the article writer doesn't say, but they're definitely mad at Limp Biscuit. They think they suck. And then he says, uh, but there remains the sense that it's been done before. The Rolling Stones modeled women's clothing as Rivers did Monday more than 30 years ago. The sex pistols in their audience were spitting and flipping each other off more than 20 years ago. And Ice-T with body count was mixing rap and metal and to more compelling effect long before this biscuit grew limp. In 1997, seeing some 20-something kids sputter and curse about his problems just isn't very shocking or very interesting. And I'm like, shut the fuck. Like, fuck you. Oh, the Limp Biscuits doing what the Rolling Stones did. That's actually a big compliment. Is, like uh, you're actually, yeah, you're actually fucking up. You're, you know, and then this is just, you know, how I love 
19, like whenever we read these articles, we get these like paragraphs or quotes where it's just like, this is so 1997. Get ready for this. Okay. Local heroes stained and I don't, it's not stained the one we know it's stained with an ED local heroes stained and sugar milk opened the show with middling metal made muddy within the hard walls of the Webster cold, a late addition to the lineup offered more of the same. Most entertaining were Sugar Milk singer T.J. DeMonte's impressions of Cartman from the Comedy Central cartoon series South Park, a voice <laughs> not so different from his own. And then this right here, you're going to love all these band names right here. Sugar Milk returns to the Webster tonight for a record release party for Six of Connecticut's Loudest, a new disc featuring, and here we go, Sugar Milk, Toxic Field Mice, Ill face, stitch, third mind, and blank. Ill face. Ill face. What a band name. Unbelievable. Toxic field mice. Yeah. Love every well, love every funny. You know. Love every bit of love every bit of that. So well, anyway, yeah, I just that's the Hartford one. And then yeah, the Rolling Stone profile. This was a uh seems like I don't know if it was a cover story, but definitely a big profile of Limp Biscuit. This was written by <laughs> Stephen Daly. On August 5th, 1999, the headline is Send Porn Stars, Funk, and Money, The Limp Biscuit Story. How the Florida band went from scrounging an extra bag of chips backstage to multi-million album selling stars. <laughs> this, uh, this article opens with, uh, who wants to speak to me? Fred Durst regards his <laughs> cell phone with suspicion. Adam Sandler? The Limp Biscuit leader has been chatting with producer Rick Rubin, his friend, and now he thinks his chain is being yanked. Uh-oh, Adam, how are you, man? Durst says, sitting bolt upright. What? I don't lick ass. Oh, kick ass. Thanks, man. Yeah, I know. We're from Florida, Jacksonville, the really shitty part. So fucking funny way to open the article because you can picture that. I, I, I'll tell this story. Uh Back, God damn it, I can't remember which WrestleMania it was, but it was back in New York. And we went for the weekend and we're kind of performing at this thing with Kath and Rachel from WrestleSplania, where it was like a party where we could watch WrestleMania and, you know, people could get on mic and shit like that. And there's a wrestler named Joey Janela, like an indie wrestler, that was one of the first wrestlers to get signed by AEW. And uh, he's standing outside. And he posted something about one of the matches. And then he was like, hey, man, listen to this. And he played a message by Cody Rhodes, like <laughs> talking to him and like started showing uh, texts that the Young Buck sent to him. And I lost like all respect for him. Like that minute where I was like, you're dropping, you're dropping names. And that's what this reminded me of was Janela being like, uh, yeah, you know, Cody texts me sometimes. Sometimes he calls me and tells me, you know, not to do stuff. They're kind of lame, but, you know, it's cool. I'm part of the... Well, know. it's also funny that the Q&A we read was from the exact same year, and he's dropping, like, oh, I was hanging out at Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's house, and I'm <laughs> friends with Jack Nicholson and Dana Carvey. I love it. About Stuck, he goes, I was angry at my girlfriend. I let it build up, Durst explains. If you heard what she called me, I understand that two wrongs don't make her right. I... Want to know what she called him so badly? 
so fucking bad. And he goes, I was reacting. I didn't think of the consequences. I've learned my lesson. Now I soak everything in and then I respond. And when someone criticizes my lyrics, it makes me think twice. Was I a dick? A homophobe? A chauvinist? No, but I got to go back and make sure. Yeah, I, w- I went back and made sure. Yeah, I double I checked. I might have been homophobic. In I double checked. I used- I'm fine. I double checked. I'm fine. <laughs> where in the song where I call Jonathan Davis gay seven fucking thousand different ways. I don't. I went back and listened, and I don't think I was actually homophobic in that song. I wasn't homophobic. Yeah, uh, you, you and I. Uh, all, one of our favorite uh, genres of thing in articles is uh, when they do a joke, when like the person's trying to do a joke. Uh, So this was a great one here. Uh, He's talking about hanging out with Jonathan Davis. Davis offers to take his surrogate sons to the O'Farrell Theater, a San Francisco strip club of national renown. Only Durst accepts, and he is not disappointed. The pneumatic pulchritude on show in the club's many rooms has him glassy-eyed. What a sentence, by the way. He asks one girl, do you guys eat pussy? Durst's manager furnishes him with $60 for a private lap dance. Afterward, he glows. The girl said, I saw you on MTV today, Durst reports. So I said, that's right. I'm one of the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, that's nice, though. Great joke. Great joke. I'm one of the Backstreet Boys. And also, I'm getting in a brag that the stripper who stripped for me saw me on MTV. Here's a God tier sentence uh, <laughs> quote here. Even as this limp biscuit overcome all the adversities before them, their search for approval continues directing his own videos, faith and nookie kibitzing with the likes of Adam Sandler and trying to get his own multi-million dollar label deal to Durst mine are only the beginning. He is currently shopping a film treatment that he describes as the breakfast club meets the game. I wish he would have made it. I I don't see why they didn't make it. And now I want to see that movie because whatever the script was, was probably incredibly stupid. Oh, no question about it. So here's another thing that goes on in this article that rules is that they're all getting a, a early preview of the Phantom Menace. Yes. For some reason. Like MTV, at, Sky, at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah. MTV sends them to Skywalker Ranch so that they can the thing and goes uh the first card disgorges dj lethal and his girlfriend plus fred durst and his significant other none other than carmen electra former prince protege this makes the actual writer look bad more than yes. it makes fred look oh, bad by this, the way. this writing is bad he goes my game mtv game show hostess and putative wife of nba oddity dennis rodman as well as one time consort of tommy lee electra's charms are accentuated by a clingy pink sweater and uh, then I put in parentheses, they call Limp Biscuit misogynistic. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. A clingy pink sweater. Yeah. Her titties <laughs> are her uh, charms. A small pale dude with a backward baseball cap hails Durst with a what's up, bro? Same shit, dude. Just slanging and gangbang. And Durst <laughs> responds, his funky friend is Justin Jeffrey of 98 Degrees. Limp Biscuit are sworn enemies of all boy bands, but it's hard to carry that kind of righteousness into the real world, especially when our, your management company has just added Backstreet Boys to its roster. So, insane. Was, 
Uh, the last one I have from this, by the way, he also says the N word in this article, um, which, w- which when we did significant other, he also used the same phrase uh, where he said that people used to make fun of him for listening to rap music and they called him an N word lover. It's a man cow um, and- saying that he entered. It's like when man cow said he introduced San Francisco to hip hop. And then when they finally saw him, they thought he was black. They were like surprised he wasn't black. And it's like, that's not true. That's that's a classic man cow lie. <laughs> Totally. I love it. Um, okay. And then this is the, yeah, the last one I have from here, uh, which is right after you talked about the breakfast club meets the game. He has a very funny quote. I want to be the only musician who puts true, good, original thoughts into music and into films that have a major impact worldwide. He says, which that's very funny. Like you don't have control over that. Really? I want to be the only musician that does true stuff. Well, that's not how it works. I want okay. to do it on a huge level. I can nail it in both worlds. Really do it, man. That's where I'm heading. I want to be Freddie Ford Coppola. Yes. And Wes, uh, I love this. Uh, and so it goes, Wes Borland is next to blow up. They're mad because there is, uh, you, they have to squeeze into a limo. There's not enough room seats, in the, yeah. apparently and i know west borland is next to blow up damning the whole event as a kiss-ass bullshit sure takes this rant personally which is their manager borland has been writing him all day about his excessive cell phone jockeying so sure takes the guitarist to one side and chews him out then sure volunteers to make his own transportation arrangements an hour later limp biscuit exit the skywalker rants there's still no sign of sure's taxi he asked Tori Spelling for a ride in her half-empty stretch, and the Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> starlet declines. <laughs> so, uh, and, yeah, he goes, and the Beverly Hills 90210 starlet declines. It's a tragic comic sense that would be perfect for Limp Biscuits' allegedly wild and honest home video to be released this fall. The document is titled Poop. I don't think that ever came out. No, it didn't. And that's a very funny last. That's the last line of the article. The document is titled Poop, which is a really yeah. good way of I'll give Stephen uh, daily credit. That's a great way of ending this article. Most of it sucks, but that's a very funny way to end it. Um, I do love the idea of also Tori spelling being like, who the fuck are you? No, you cannot ride in my limo. You piece yeah, of fuck shit, you, bro. Really good. Um, do you have anything else, Brian? No, I'm, I'm done. Well, me too. you're going to make me humiliate myself in a minute, but I am done. Okay. Well, there you go. So we are now here at the tweet defense. If you've never listened to the show before, this is how we review the album. This is if someone were to tweet at you and say $3 bill is a $3 bill y'all is a bad album. Uh, how many tweets would you do in defense of the album? Brian, we'll start with you. Where are you at on this one? Uh, a, a million billion. I love this album. <laughs> so giving it a million billion. I love that. Now we're resorting to like child, the way ch- children describe numbers for your scores, yeah. which I, I do like a million billion. Um, I was going to say bo billion, but I didn't. Oh, I mean, that's good too. I'm going to go with uh, seven. I think it's, uh, you know, obviously a great album, great in the genre. Love just again, listening to it uh, for this, just how much they had really nailed what they were all about on their debut album. It's very fucking impressive to me. Um, It's got some great songs, but it does have some songs on it. I don't love, I do think significant other is ultimately probably a better album. I might even no, I don't think I like chocolate starfish better than this one, but um, yeah, I think it's like not a perfect record, 
Um, so I cannot in good conscience go higher than a seven, but I mean, obviously there's some undeniable songs on here and it's a beautiful mission statement as a debut album for limp biscuit. All right. If you want more of our mission statements, you can head on over to patreoncom slash the POD cast. That's cast with a K like the band corn $4 a month gets you access to three bonus episodes every single month. Uh, last month we reviewed the coloring book EP by Glassjaw. We were supposed to have a guest on the show. They did not show up. So it was just Brian and I valiantly soldiering on, uh, but it's up there for you now. And we also, uh, as a treat, all of the bonus episodes are now available in video format. Uh, that's at a $7 tier, but you get all the bonus episodes in video format. Plus, you get some extras. There's an exclusive poll. You get a higher merch discount. A couple times a year, Brian and I are going to do a hangout uh, with the people at the $7 tier. So that's all over there on Patreon. You can also uh, pay us to uh, review a song or an album. So all of that information is up on our Patreon. Every Patreon comes with a merch discount, comes with an invite to our Discord, and you get access to our entire back catalog which is over 100 episodes so if you're listening to this and you're like i want some more brain poisoning uh you can head on over to patreon.com slash the pod cast that is all there for you okay brian we are now here at the challenge it brings me no joy to say that for some reason you citing mox's autobiography last month uh got you the w in the poll uh you beat me 58 percent to 41 <clears> percent <throat> sorry 59 to 41 rather and so, uh, Brian, that means you are now back. Uh, well, you're still in the lead. You have 24 wins. I have 22 and we have two ties. Uh, the challenge, by the way, if this is your first time listening to the show, this is where we give ourselves a challenge based on the record, uh, some kind of fun little thing to do. Uh, and then you get to vote on the winner. Uh, this time we decided uh, that I came up with this one. Uh, based off of Indigo Flow, where Fred sort of uh, lazily raps to thank everybody involved in the making of Indigo Flow, uh, I decided we should do that. We should do like a little rap, uh, a little thank you rap, uh, just to, you know, shout out everybody um, that I guess is involved in whatever it is we're thanking people for. Uh, Brian, you want to go first? Sure. Now, I want to say this up front. I have been fucking with Gwen lately by rapping all the time. <laughs> okay. Sort of be annoying. So I'm doing it in the way that I rap to her. Okay. And uh, I'm going to do this and it's not going to be fun. It's not an exhaustive list of people who've helped me along the way. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, my name is Brian and I'm here to say my boys in Chapo put me on in a major way. When I launched guys, I did Pendejo time. I love my daughter and my lovely wife. And when it comes to guys, I love John and Chris and every guest on the show. I did. That's it. I mean, that's the best I can do because <laughs> I've been doing well. My name is dad. And I'm <laughs> That's good, yeah. And it's just been stuck in my head. The well, well, I, my name I had is to thank, Dad. I wanted to thank uh, uh, people who had me on their podcast, and for some reason, Pendejo Time is the one I really remember. <laughs> I, love I love those guys, though. So you know, shout right. out, shout out to Pendejo Time. Um, I I shout out some podcasts in mine as well. So uh, so here we go. Uh, and I, I really, I wanted to try to channel Fred on this one. So that's, that's why, that's why this rap is weak. That is not what I'm, I'm actually a great rapper, but that's why this rap is weak. Okay, here we go. This one goes out to all the homies and to the people I don't like y'all can blow me. 
Got to give it up to my wife, love of my life, Becca. Without you, the POD cast could never reach the Mecca. Big ups to BQ for all the success. Roach Coach, Holiday Kirk, we all feeling blessed. Thanks to producer Dan checking all the levels, making this dope-ass podcast about new metal. Beautiful. That was beautiful. Actually, that was so beautiful that now I'm like mad that I joked around and didn't rhyme very well. I did only have like seven minutes to figure out. what. what yeah, we do. came up with the challenge pretty late. That's, yeah. that's definitely true. And we don't uh, have to pick albums, which I should have just taken my album picking time. You should have. Yeah. So I if don't, you want to. Sorry, go ahead. I always have such a fucking hard time picking albums. So well, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it this month. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to vote on the winner of the challenge, we put up a poll uh, usually around the middle of the month over on our Twitter. It's twitter.com slash the POD underscore cast cast with a K like the band corn. Normally, you would also be able to vote on the poll. But as you may know, if you're someone who knows how to count uh, the episode that comes after 49 is episode 50. So next month, Brian and I are celebrating the 50th birthday of the POD cast, and we're going to do something a little bit special for you. So there's no poll this month. Next month is going to be a very special episode of the POD cast. We look forward to bringing it to you. Uh, We thank you for listening. Again, if you want to donate to the show, patreon.com slash the POD cast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, that's where all the polls are. Everything you need to know about us is released on there. That's the POD underscore cast. Both are cast with a K. Thank you for listening. We love you. We'll see you back here next month. Goodbye. Bye-bye.